0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hamilton Today here on 900CHML. Just peeked out before coming into the studio. The apocalypse is upon us. It is black and it's not just daylight saving time black. It is black and dark and stormy out there. It is like an April evening, only in November. Welcome to the show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. The other Scott will be back tomorrow. We, uh, we have got a, an absolutely, absolutely jam-packed show. We decided to try and set the bar. So when Scott comes back tomorrow, we're going to say, I dare you to get one more thing into the show than we have today. I dare you. That's how busy it is. Uh, we were, we are going to be talking about the municipal budgets. They are beginning the process for municipal budgets is about to get underway and, This, I would suggest, is going to be a giant absolute cataclysmic nightmare migraine headache of epic proportions. We will find out just how bad it's going to be, though. And if that sounds negative, remember one thing, 14.2%. That's what they told us was the anticipated increase, 14.2%. That's what we're trying to whittle down. Well, that's what they're trying to whittle down. 14.2%. Fourteen point two percent. You don't think that that's a giant nightmare headache? Uh, you must be independently wealthy. The rest of us do not want a fourteen point two percent tax increase. I assure you, the Grey Cup was supposed to have at least we hoped it would a home team in it. Uh, that's not going to happen. We'll talk to Rick Zamprin in a few minutes about what happened to the Thai Cats and where do they go from here. We're now having e-bikes that are going to be around. In the street, what do we do if there's an accident with one? Who is who covers that? And what if you what if you're on one and you cause an accident? Should should people who ride them have to get their own insurance? It's a really interesting topic. We will get into that one. LRT, another public transit issue. Uh, Toronto. There are documents that have been obtained by Global News suggesting Toronto is now possibly going to force the province's hand to run. Their Eglinton Crosstown or Finch West LRT. They want the government to fork out more money to operate this, but we want to operate our own LRT. What does Toronto know about the costs that are coming to run an LRT that we don't? Because remember, we don't know yet what this is going to cost. We are pushing ahead with this plan, but we don't know what the operating costs are yet. What does Toronto know that maybe we ought to be nervous about if they're now saying, we're not doing this province, you may have to take over. Here's one that'll, uh, if that wasn't enough in the UK, there is a report from UK national security saying that a terror attack in Canada is very likely. Now, Canada has downplayed this. What, speaking of what do they know that we don't know? What does the UK know that we don't know? Anyway, all that stuff and much, much more. The budget process is about to begin. And on Monday, public submissions are, well, today, I guess, uh, the public submissions were going to begin on the budget. And this is going to be a process that I think is going to be exceedingly, exceedingly painful. Let's bring in John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. John, how are you? I'm well, thanks,
2: Scott.
1: Good to be with you. Good to be with you. I Look, uh, there is nothing that I can hear about our budget process this year that does not bring me back to 14.2%. And I suspect that when we finally get our increase, it won't be that high. But, you know, you written, you've written a piece in the Bay Observer pointing out a bunch of the different groups that are coming forward to delegate at City Council looking for new spending And it concerns me, not that they don't have, they don't bring value to the city, not they don't have valid concerns, but every bit of shaving of expenses that we might be able to do, that council might be able to do, they could very easily just spend that again.
2: Well, they could. Actually, when I looked at the list of of people that were delegating, I I was surprised at how short it was, to be honest. And and it's some of the people that we do see in front of council frequently, uh, the ACORN group, which are basically a uh, uh, tenants' rights organization. Um, the, the the one big one there is uh, Indwell, who have been building affordable housing uh, all over Hamilton and uh, providing supports to the people that live in them. They're looking for $31 million. I wasn't, uh, in time for this conversation, able to figure out whether that was Money that was, uh, you know, in some ways was already discussed, or or whether that was a new number uh, in their in their uh, submission, they argue that the thirty-one million would allow them to maximize the amount of money that would be triggered from the two senior governments. Um, so, so that's one, and and I think many people would argue that uh, you know, so far at least, they've done a pretty good job of. Of managing the affordable housing file, where uh, almost uh, nobody else seems to have been able to do it, so uh, Burlington is a little different. They uh, they've already released a, a fairly detailed budget. Uh, they they've released a budget that uh, the mayor has already taken a stab at and pulled some money out of. We haven't seen that in Hamilton yet. All all we've seen is the the dire prediction of a fourteen point two percent increase. And, uh, uh, after today, the public doesn't get to delegate, uh, for Hamilton until, uh, for the Hamilton budget until the middle of January.
1: Yeah. And, and you're right that the number may not be as large. And I, I hope that that is look I, so many of these groups that are coming, they do valuable work. Uh, it, it's not a suggestion that they aren't v- people or groups that do important things. It's just, John, as, as so many people have said, and I know there are delegates coming saying the opposite, saying we have to control our spending. I'm not positive that there will not be also additions that councillors bring forward, you know, projects that they want to see done that will add to this. That, that's the concern. Last year, council whittled down the number. I can't remember where it started at, 6.8 or something like that. And they whittled it down and then added a whole bunch of spending that took it right back to where they started from after all that work. I, that's what I'm worried about here.
2: Well, uh, this, uh, as I've said in the past, uh, the more often this council meets, the more often the more money they add to the budget and the more staff they add. So, it almost be beneficial to consider a moratorium on meetings. Uh, But they're getting feedback. This fourteen point two number definitely stirred up the public, Uh, and uh, you know, so they're hearing it. You can tell by some of the remarks they make. In council, that they they, their phones are ringing, they are receiving some email uh, on the budget issue, but it's going to take a tremendous amount of discipline. And and frankly, uh, some of the stuff that's uh, that's on the page now, uh, if this budget is going to get into any kind of reasonable number, there's going to have to be some cuts of some things that we said we were going to do that, uh, frankly, uh, we we just can't afford to do. The one well, area where Burlington is a little ahead of us, they, they've got a petition going against their budget, which is something like 6.5%. They've already got 2,000 signatures, and and it's growing every day. And uh, Burlington, we're talking about a city that had less than 30,000 people vote in the last election. So, you know, 2,200 signatures is not uh, insignificant.
1: No, and, and one of the things that we're also hearing, though, John, and you, I, you I'm sure, have written about this, is we're hearing a lot from councillors that, well, hey, this isn't all us. This is the province. The province has dumped a bunch of stuff on us and that's going to add to the cost. And that is, of course, there is truth to that. However, the province is the province for all the cities around this province. And there is no other city that I've seen, even with provincial downloads, there is no other city that I've found that's talking about a 14.2% increase. This is way above almost everywhere else that I can find.
2: Yeah the, the one thing that did come into the council today the the public delegations the in person delegations we we talked about but there were two or three really sharp letters that went in and 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 sort of the theme of those letters is you you know councilors you have to take the ability of the taxpayer to pay into account And uh, I I can recall uh, at a recent meeting, Councillor Jackson was the only councillor I heard around that table that talked about uh, the ability of taxpayers to pay these increases. So uh, we're we're headed for an orgy of uh, virtue signaling, uh, ideological statements, finger wagging. It's going to be a a very dramatic uh, set of uh, budget meetings. Uh, heading up to, it's actually February 15th that Hamilton Council is expected to approve the budget. There's going to be a whole raft of meetings. I th- I think what I would say to uh, people in Hamilton and Burlington is th- there are these public opportunities. They're few and far between, but they should be on a daily basis communicating with their councillor and the mayor. There's, there's no uh, prohibition about Sending emails off to counselors and the mayor, and um, if you want to have some impact on this thing, they're going to need to see a stack of emails telling them what the public wants.
1: We got to go, John. But I, my wife and I were driving the other day and went by our old neighborhood where we lived when we first got married, and there was a house for sale very close to the house that we lived in at the time, a smaller than what we lived in. And we quickly looked up on Realtor.ca as we were driving. She did; I was driving um, to find out the taxes for that smaller house are now three and a half, almost four times more than what we paid 24 years ago when we lived there. I mean, there, there's what we're dealing with as far as why it's becoming unaffordable for people. And that's a small home in an area of town that is not considered, you know, one of the highest luxury areas of town. It's tough for people. They have to find some way to do what they need to do, but also to keep this thing down. They just do.
2: They do. And and the mayor's talking about dipping into uh you know reserves. Yep. Uh, that that's a very short term prospect. Burlington has a problem now. Their their reserves have been uh, had a caution label put on them. They're they're so depleted. So the, the reserves are not the answer uh in the long haul. That that
1: yeah. We got lots of time to talk about this and we will. Uh John Best from the Bay Observer. Always appreciate the time. Thanks, John. My pleasure. Ah, yeah. Things did not go so well on the weekend for those Hamilton Ticats. I, I just assumed, I just always thought that somehow, despite the fact that this year was mediocre at best, and that might be being generous, I just always kind of assumed that they would pull it together when it mattered and they would end up somehow, some way, finding their way into the Grey Cup game in Hamilton. Nope. Nope, that did not happen. Let's bring in Rick Zamper, and He is the host of the fifth quarter. He got to commiserate and dry the tears of Ticat fans. The world were around after the game on Saturday. Sir, how are you?
3: I'm fantastic. Are you? Are,
1: Are you? Have you recovered and you're now you've moved on to other pursuits?
3: Uh, yes. Namely the Toronto Maple Leafs who are kind of in the same boat as the Ticats. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend last night, watching the Buffalo Bills have another terrible game and I said, is there, honestly, is there a fan base? And I don't just mean for one team that is more tormented. Then Southern Ontario, because the Buffalo Bills are for many people, their team, you got the Bills who are falling apart. You got the Leafs that right now can't figure anything out. You got the Jays who are just, the leadership is just insane. I don't know what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. Ty cats can't win a gray cup for the life of them. I mean, you got forge, so that's good. TFC, um, it's, this is, this is a fan base that is, it's like one giant constant kick in the crotch every day of the year.
3: Yeah, and it's and it's frustrating because, you know, at, at some point, you know, one of these teams, and let's just focus on the Ticats here, will we'll eventually, one day, I mean, if the Chicago Cubs can win a World Series, you would have to think in a 19 league, at one point in the fingers crossed not too distant future, the Ticats will break this curse or hex or or whatever you want to call it. Obviously, it's not going to happen this year, and who knows, it might not even happen next year or for many years. But sometime down below the the road, there's got to be a break or two or a superstar that emerges that just carries this team, this franchise on his shoulders and gets it done. But man, oh man, it has been a a pretty up and down now going on to 24 years for this this franchise. And you mentioned, I mean, nine team league,
1: the the stats would suggest that they should have won three since their last one, basically. And at, at a certain point, Rick, I mean, look, coaches come and go, players come and go. At a certain point, do you have to start pointing the finger higher than coaches and players and say there is something wrong with the foundation of the organization that it just can't bring in the right people and can't get this done?
3: I certainly don't think the upper echelon of the franchise should be immune to this, right? You, you know, let's go back to the Maple Leafs. A lot of people will point to the ownership of not, you know, setting the tone, setting the direction. You can look to the Thai Cats for that you know particular reason as well because it's been Bob Young and Scott Mitchell and for the most part over the last number of years Matt Affneck on uh, more or less the business side but at the end of the day you know they're setting the direction they're setting the tone and it's the tone of yeah we want to win a championship but you know the decisions that are made and even made well below them are not computing to championship football so whether it's giving Orlando Steinauer too much power at his position or, you know, not acting fast enough when a coordinator has to be dismissed or holding on to guys for far too long or paying free agents a little too much money that and then they don't pan out. I mean, there's so many different layers to, you know, orchestrating a, a championship um, atmosphere with, with a uh, with the franchise. They They've kind of missed on two or three or four of these different things. Um more often than not, over the past, well, it's it's now gonna be twenty years or already is twenty years of the Bob Young franchise. He bought it in 03 and here we are in twenty twenty three.
1: Yeah, it's it, it it is for fans it's gotta be incredibly, incredibly frustrating because it, <laughs> It just, every time you think that some big play is coming in and I'm not talking about on the field, I mean, big play that's going to, you know, the Bo Levi Mitchell hiring or go back to Casey printers signing or, you know, pick your one, the, the Johnny Menzel pick, I mean, whatever. And it it seems as though it always goes wrong. Well, clearly it does because they don't win a championship, but I mean, even just Day to day, it seems like I mean there hasn't been. There's been a couple stretches I think where you look and you say this is a great team that should win. It doesn't. But more often than not, Rick, it's been mediocre. It's just been mediocre.
3: Yeah, I would have to say in the last ten years, because that's really when Ticats football finally you know got back. They they made the Grey Cup in Regina. Now they ultimately lost to Saskatchewan. They probably should have beaten Calgary the following year. You know, a few years after that, they run into a buzzsaw called the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who were just, you know, lifting off into their dynasty and then they'd lose to them again. I mean, they've had their opportunities. They've they've had good teams. They've constructed, you know, a a winning football program uh, in those times. But at the end of the day, when you don't win the trophy, I mean, anything less than that is considered a failure. I know there's, you know, certain aspects of each season, whether it's a you know, a player or a coach or, you know, system-wise something has clicked and you can say, all right, that worked, let's, let's do more of that. But unless you win the trophy at the end, it's, it's really, uh, you know, you can't hang your hat on finishing second or, or making it to the East final or whatever, or just making it to the playoffs. This fan base wants, and I think at the end of the day, after, you know, uh, all these years deserves a championship.
1: All right. Let's go back for a second here, just to, to, to your point about, you know, whether it's mediocre this year, eight and 10. Let's go back eight, 10, eight, six, 15 and three. That was a great year back in 2019, <laughs> eight and 10, six and 12, seven, 11, 10 and eight, nine and nine, 10 and eight, six and 12, eight and 10, nine and nine, nine and nine, three and 15, three and 15, four and 14, five and 13, nine and eight. That goes back to the Bob Young era. That is mediocre defined. There's one. Really, really great year and the rest, you are below 500 or just at 500 and yes, they've made it to the great cup a few times where they put it together in time to get to that game, but my goodness, it's just, they, there's no, there's rarely a sense that the dynasty is being built here.
3: Yeah. I would say this, this team has not really had a dynasty for, you know, you could probably say decades. Yeah. They've had some, you know, good teams here and there in the last 20 years, but you know that they, they, a they haven't won a championship. B you know collectively they're under 500. Uh, especially when you couple those two, three, and 15 years with Charlie Taff at the helm, um, it's a team that has you know it the the future in the palm of its hands. If they make the right decisions, starting with this off season, I think there's a multitude of things that they probably should be doing. Whether or not they're going to do it remains to be seen.
1: What do you think? We only have a few seconds here. There was a comment made by Bo Levi Mitchell after the game that if you don't play your team's highest paid player in a playoff game, I don't know if he sees a future for himself here. I'm paraphrasing. What do you think the future for Bo Levi Mitchell is here?
3: Listen, I was uh, incredibly dumbfounded and shocked that he did not get into the game earlier than he did. Let's face it, he got garbage time at the end, threw four passes, got six minutes of playing time, and I think he's done. To be honest, I don't, I cannot see a future for him in Hamilton unless he wants to pick up as, you know, a quarterback coach or some, or, you know, a position on the coaching staff for him to swallow his pride. Here's a future hall of famer. Here's a Grey cup champion. And to be given what he was given in an Eastern semifinal winner, take all the biggest game of the year. This is why you brought him to town and pay him all those dollars and then not play him. I can't see why he would want to come back.
1: It's a, it's a great question. We're going to talk about it later in the show, uh, about that particular topic, um, but yeah, it's, that one was an absolute head scratcher. If you're going to go down and you've got a $500,000 quarterback, why in heaven's name, when your other guy wasn't doing anything, why in heaven's name, do you not get him in there earlier? It just was bizarre. Anyway, Rick Zampern, always appreciate you You can catch Rick tomorrow morning, 530 right here on 900 CHML. And I was going to say on the fifth quarter, but, um, next year, (laughs) next year, Rick Zampern, thanks for doing this. Thanks Scott. This is a, uh, this is an interesting question that I had not contemplated until I read a story about it. It never dawned on me. Hamilton has just decided to buy, the, the city is going to spend money to buy some rentable e-bikes. And we've already got some of the scooters, the e-scooters around. This is, this is, you know, a, a popular option for people to get around. However, what happens if someone riding one of these crashes into someone else and there's an injury? Because my understanding, and my next guest will tell me if I'm right on this or not, my understanding is that you don't have to have any kind of insurance to rent one of these. You just rent it. Should they, though? David Shelnut is the biking lawyer. He's a personal injury lawyer for cyclists and injured people, co-founder of the Bike Brigade, joins us now. David, how are you today? Hey, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, This story comes from some examples. One of them was in Montreal of a guy walking along... Uh, I guess the sidewalk and someone on one of these bikes crashed into him and broke his ankle and has had him off work for a while. And he's been trying to get some settlement with Montreal or something. And they say, no, we're, uh, we we do not cover these things. What, what are the rules and what should the rules be about insurance on these?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um you're you're right that the sort of a, a cyclist on cyclist or a cyclist on pedestrian or e-cyclist on pedestrian collision wouldn't be covered by sort of the normal auto insurance uh, that we have for for a number of really good reasons. Um, but yeah, you could be left uh in the lurch, potentially, um, you know, if you're involved in a collision with someone, uh, you're supposed to exchange information. And, you know, if you had home insurance or you had some other private insurance um, to cover you, then the injured person could claim through that for sure. Um, but but you can see the the odd case where, where that wouldn't happen. And that's what Mr. Allard here is talking about.
1: If the city, which in this case it is, if the city is helping to purchase these bikes, therefore it's city money that's helping to fund this, if there was to be an accident, could the
4: city be liable? Could the city be on the hook for a lawsuit? You know, you you'd really want as a user of these systems, like if you're renting a Bixie bike to read the fine print uh, and see uh, what coverages are in place, if any. Um, and, and then, so whether it would be on the city or on you, um, you know, uh, we deal with, I would tell you hundreds of cases of cyclists, uh, being hit by motorists a year, uh, not maybe one where, uh, an e-bike is involved in hitting somebody else. And, and in that case, um, it was an Uber, um, uh, someone doing an Uber shift. Uh, and we're, we're gonna look to Uber, uh, in that case. Um, but, uh. But sure it's, it's incredibly rare, but you, you want to read the FIDE print and see, and see, and the city I'm sure has looked at this stuff uh, before launching these.
1: well, you would hope so. I mean, you would. And as I say, I, I believe you when you say it's rare. However, I expect that as these become more popular and more people are using them, like anything else, the more of them that are used, the more number of things that will happen. That's just statistically the truth. And we've got the, the, the. You can ride in the bike lanes with these, right? I mean, these, these electric bikes can use the bike lanes. It doesn't have to be just leg powered bicycles that go, it could go in this. But what if you're on a sidewalk? Because right now the rules, I believe also say no bicycles on the sidewalk, but does that change it? If you were on a bike, on a sidewalk with one of these e-bikes, does that change the rules?
4: Oh, I don't think the sidewalk rule would change. But what you're really getting at here is is—is I think the heart of the issue is that we've seen like a transportation revolution in the last few years. You know, five years ago, we weren't even talking about e-bikes in the way that we're talking about them now. Now they're being used for all manner of things. And, uh, you know, as with so many other things, our politicians and our our infrastructure has not caught up with the way things are changing. Um, And so we really all these questions uh, should be directed and we, we ought to be relying on our public servants, our elected officials, our transportation departments to keep up with the times. Um, and ensure that infrastructure uh, is safe for all road users. We, we want to encourage people to get out of motor vehicles and onto sort of micro mobility uh, devices like e-bikes, but we have to ensure that it it provides safety for them and also for pedestrians. Dave, we just got a second here, but should there be something that requires you to
1: have a license to rent one of these? And I don't mean, you know, a huge costly thing, but just so. You know, let's say it was a $5 a year license, but just so we know who it is who's driving these. So if there was an accident, they could be identified and we could deal with these things.
4: We we can't even in our current systems handle reporting dangerous drivers. Uh, the administrative nightmare that would happen, I suspect with licensing would be far beyond our capabilities. That, But that you raise a good point. Perhaps uh, in the user fee for the city of Hamilton uh, on these e-bikes, there's there's something in there that provides you with a little bit of insurance. Mm. David Shelnut, the biking lawyer, really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for this. You have a great one. If Scott
5: Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
4: delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
1: Right now, the city of Toronto is telling the province you need to fork out more money or run our eglinton or finch lrt or we just may not use them we may just shut them down because the cost is we're, we're in a budget crunch and the cost is going to be too high when i heard this from a report from my next guest a lot of lights And sirens started going off in my head about the Hamilton LRT. Colin DeMello is the Chief, uh, Queens Park Chief Bureau Correspondent for Global News, joins us now. Colin, how are you today?
5: Hey, doing just well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: This, uh, okay, before we get into the costs and everything else, every time Toronto talks about the LRT, it is a reminder, is it not, of just what a colossal mess this whole thing has been?
5: Well, I mean, look, LRTs in, in Ontario, for some reason, don't seem to have the best track record. I mean, you have the auto LRT that seems to be closed more than it's actually open. You have the uh, Eglinton West LRT in Toronto that you know hasn't opened even though it's been under construction for what seems like since LRTs were invented. and then you <laughs> obviously have the Hamilton LRT that you know got off the ground, then didn't get off the ground and then got resuscitated. so yeah, yeah I mean LRTs have a very complicated history but Uh, The the cost of running the systems as well, uh, you know, eventually gets borne out by the municipalities. And it seems at least one Toronto saying, hey, you know, we're we're tapped out as is. We don't have any more money to, to fund and operate it. So the province, with all of its capital and access to deficit spending, you know, they're saying perhaps you should be the ones operating it.
1: All right. And, you know, Colin, I'm so glad you bring this up because, again, when I read your report, heard your report, it was just so many things. That were going through my head because the city of Hamilton, when ours finally gets built, assuming it does, the city is going to be responsible for the day-to-day operation and maintenance. And yet to this point, at no point has the city of Hamilton been told what that is going to cost, which has always seemed to me to be ludicrous that you would sign on to something with no idea of what the price is going to be. But let me go to part of your report today. The annual cost of running both the Eglinton and Finch lines was pegged at around 106 million in the TTC's 2023 budget report. Well, that's a total of, uh, where did I write it down here? 19 kilometers for the Eglinton line, 10.3 for Finch. So about 30 kilometers. Ours is about half that. If we're doing basic math, half of 106 means 53 million. We've always been told it would be between six and I think $16 million or something or six or 20. This sounds like it's nowhere near that amount of money to run an LRT.
5: Well, I mean, you know, things never come <laughs> as advertised. <laughs> that should that should always be kind of a given in politics. And, and I mean, to be clear, I mean, this is just an estimate that the Ford government has. We don't know just yet exactly what those ultimate costs would be. But, but uh, you, you know, your your point is valid, right? I mean, there hasn't quite been a lot of transparency around some of the costs. The government, especially when it comes to transit, has been quite... Um, has, has had quite a hold on all of the information and so if municipalities don't know exactly what it is it comes as a shock to the system once those costs come in quite over budget uh, and then what happens right where does that money come from especially when you have a government like the ford government that keeps harping on municipalities for increasing taxes or even considering taxes so it it, it raises a larger question of you know if the province doesn't want you to increase taxes if the province is uh, also you know downloading the responsibility of operating these transit systems who ultimately gets to hold the the financial bag on 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 the operation because this operation is you know in perpetuity right as long as the the, the line actually runs so so there will be probably conversations that will happen between Hamilton city hall and the mayor of uh, the the uh, minister of transportation at queen's park as well and will Hamilton also follow suit and say, look, I mean, we might not be able to pay for all of the cost of this unless we either get a subsidy or the province picks up the entire tab.
1: And yet the concern I have, and this is, you know, I, I don't know how much you would know about this, but the concern that I have with that is the city here has always been arguing for this to be on their plate. They want to operate and maintain it. It would be such a giant about face and humiliation than to say, well, actually we were just kidding. We want you to pick up the whole tab. I don't know how they do that at this point. So you're, you're stuck with looking at these numbers and going, wow, gulp, uh, that's a big, big number Toronto's talking about.
5: Well, but it also becomes a very complicated affair if the local transit system doesn't operate the local transit system, right? So uh, you, you take in Toronto, for example, I mean, we have a subway system. We have the GO Network, which is obviously run by Metrolinks, which is an agency of the province. So the province could, in theory, run all of the transit systems in Ontario if they wanted to at an enormous cost. Um, and that would be borne out by every taxpayer across the province, regardless of whether or not you use the transit system or not. But if you take Toronto for instance, we've got the TTC, right? How how would it work from a user perspective if you've got one transit authority operating the LRT and then another transit authority operating uh, the TTC? I mean, Excellent mean how, how do you integrate all of that from from the commuter perspective, but also How do you integrate it from the union perspective, from the employee perspective? It makes for a very messy scenario.
1: You are 1000% right, Colin, I mean, as per usual, but you're absolutely right that that is a huge issue Again, I come back to the fact that how in the world, and how in the world do you announce that you want to operate this with no idea of what it's going to cost to operate? That to me is flying blind. That is a scary thing, especially as I say, when you see these T- this TTC 2023 budget report come out saying for double the distance of track, theirs is going to be $106 million a year. My math isn't great, but that's 50 million a year for Hamilton. That's a huge nut.
5: Now, now, the one caveat I will say here is that the City of Toronto has been engaged in a you know fairly prolonged fight with the province over funding in general. The city of Toronto has about a you know one point five billion dollars budgetary shortfall, and they're looking for money to kind of fill that gap. Whether it comes from the feds, whether it comes from the province, whether it comes from increased taxes, they don't know. So this could be a leveraging tactic hmm. for them to say, "Look, you might build it, but we're not going to operate it." Uh, to, to get the province to maybe come to the table with the city of Toronto with more money. The, the problem for the province here is if the city of Toronto is successful, it obviously whets the appetite of every other municipality yep. that also has a yep. transit system that is then going to look to Queen's Park to say, hey, what about, what about
1: us? What about right. us? I, yeah, that wouldn't be the first I've, time. Colin, we got to run, but that would not be the first time for sure. And that is a, that is a Pandora's box. I know the province doesn't want to open. Uh, Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900
1: CHML. Saw a tweet this morning from Michael Chong, uh, the MP. And it was an interesting thing that he pointed out. He was pointing to a UK government website. We all have these things where we give all of our countries have these things that give travelers advice on things they should be aware of or whatever else. And it's on uh, gov.uk, the, gov- the British the UK government website and it's under safety and security. And under the headline of terrorism in Canada, it's asking, you know, should you be concerned about this beside a big exclamation mark, it says terrorists are very likely to try to carry out attacks in Canada. Then in smaller print attacks could be indiscriminate, including in places visited by foreigners, you should remain aware of your surroundings. Keep up to date with local media reports and follow advice of local authorities. This is not exactly what the Canadian government website says about our terrorists. It's got us at medium, which is the same as it's been since 2014. But is the United Kingdom part of the Five Eyes, which is a group with the states in Australia and um, New Zealand and the United Kingdom, is the is this something that we should be paying attention to? That another country in the Five Eyes believes that a terror attack is at high is there's a good chance of that happening here in this country. Christian Luprecht is a professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He is a fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute who joins us now. Christian, thank you for this today.
6: My pleasure. Hello.
1: So when you see the United Kingdom post this thing saying that terrorists are very likely, that is the exact words terrorists are very likely to try to carry out attacks in Canada, should we be concerned?
6: We should always be concerned when outsiders effectively provide sort of a a red teaming challenge function on our own assessments uh, for us to reflect on whether uh, we have it right. You know, it's like essentially peer review uh, or outside critique from your listeners on something that you could be doing better. You know, do you have it right or not? Um, and now inherently, there's different perspectives at work here. There is, to some extent, a political decision at work here, uh, because ultimately there's uh, some direction from government in terms of where they believe they should go. The moment you change the level of the alert, it, it, part of the part of the objective of having these alerts is to. Um, be able to marshal resources in the right direction relative to the threat level. And so it means that you're going to be redirecting resources. And inherently, uh, given that resources are scarce, it means you're pulling them off other priorities and other programs. I would say that in this case, uh, there is something, uh, the dissonance is a bit striking. So the UK government did cite some examples in particular, ideologically motivated violent extremism and right-wing extremism. Uh, There is a continued threat uh, of ISIS-related activity, um, and in particular, lone actors, uh, sometimes known as lone wolves. But you might also think... Sure, That on the one hand, we can say from a Canadian perspective, look, there's no need to change because uh, none of these postures have really changed with regards to IMV, right-wing, or ISIS. But of course, if you look at uh, the daily television pictures, when you're having six-year-old girls being dragged out of the rubble in their own bloods, blood, and that gets beamed across the world. Uh, You might think that lone act of terrorism of aggrieved individuals in Canada might increase in terms of people who might decide to take matters into their own hands. Now, I don't believe that the conflict and specifically the current war uh, between Hamas and Israel uh, directly affects the terrorism threat in Canada today, but it uh, certainly has the potential, especially as this continues and the grueling pictures get more plentiful um, to affect the terrorism threat um, uh, in this country over time.
1: We have seen in recent weeks, lots of rallies and lots of public statements, and most of them are simply rallies. But if you go online, you can find comments that speakers have made that I would argue are over the top are, are, I, I quite frankly, don't know how something has not been done about some of the, not many, but some of the comments we have the fourth largest Jewish population in the world in Canada. And I'm not talking about a nine 11 type thing, but you talked about lone wolves or people in small groups. I just, this is what I worry about. And I, and I worry that the UK may have this right, that we have right now a target group, unfortunately, that makes it more likely perhaps that we could see something like this from a one or two or three person action.
6: Yeah, so Canada hasn't changed its level so uh the terrorism threat remains at medium so as to say like it could occur uh in this country um and uh, uh certainly there are the threat to particular um, groups and institutions has changed uh over the last month and as a result of interna- international events um over the last month um uh, so it, it, and and i think more broadly of course that it might also be a reflection of the fact that some of our allies are str- frustrated with canada both on its foreign policy position on the very neutral stance that the government has tried to take generally on the current conflict and the war but also more specifically on the relatively homeopathic approach that canada has long taken to national security and so The UK's approach might also reflect the fact that the UK has long had a more robust national security posture. Uh, That means it doesn't, in the UK, for for a changing threat environment, you don't necessarily need to elevate uh, the terrorism threat, whereas, of course, in Canada, where we have relatively few resources dedicated to this phenomenon. Um, And our resources still tend to be directed at very traditional sort of forms of uh, terrorism. And we have not shown ourselves as particularly adept at shifting the few resources we have uh, to a rapidly changing security environment. Um, that in itself might cause an ally or partner to say, you know, uh, the risk in Canada overall in terms of public uh, safety is more elevated because our institutions are not as agile and because we have fewer resources Mm -hmm. to respond to the same changing threat environment that the UK is facing, for instance.
1: Christian, I I don't want to be cynical. I really don't. This is not a topic to be cynical on. I do wonder, though, if... There is a downside politically if our government was to suddenly say we are at greater risk. When you see someone outside make this comment, should we give it more credence because they don't have a stake in this argument here? They don't, politically, they don't stand to lose something by saying, oh yeah, it may be more dangerous right now. Should we give that therefore more believability because it doesn't affect them?
6: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, th- this is in keeping with the current federal government, right? If you think back, for instance, to the Ottawa convoy, um, how Prime Minister Trudeau sort of, in in many ways, tried to stay out of it. Um, and then subsequently, it was heavily politicized. Uh, sort of the sense that, you know, we don't want to, uh, we, we, we try to hang back, we try to kind of watch, see how sort of things unfold. Uh, let's not kind of be too hasty at uh, at making decisions. And of course, the prime minister has signaled sort of throughout his interest in staying relatively neutral when it comes to the signaling on the conflict. Uh, we've seen sort of the extent to which sort of that has riled his own cabinet and him trying to keep things together. And so you could see if the government would change the terrorism threat, that that might increase some of the divisions within his caucus, uh, possibly within the country, but might also then force the the government to confront that threat, uh, both in terms of its communications and its resource allocations in a way that a government that has long demonstrated that it doesn't have a particularly keen interest in the national security and defense file would rather not do because it might distract from its other policy priorities. Uh, So certainly there's also a political calculus at play.
1: That is Christian Luprecht from Royal Military College and from Queens University and a fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. Always love having you on here, Christian. Thank you for
6: doing this. Great. Thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On
7: Hamilton's News, today's Talk 900 CXM.
5: Uh, it is time for
1: our monthly What's Up EcDev. It's looking at different companies and different businesses around the city and amazing things they're doing. Uh, today, we're looking at a company called Handling Specialty, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. It is a leading manufacturer of custom material handling equipment and systems. And you know, I'm not sure I know what that means, but I know who will. Tom Beach is the president of Handling Specialty. He joins me now. Tom, how are you? I'm
7: well, Scott. How are you?
1: I am fantastic. I appreciate you coming on, and congratulations on your 60th anniversary this year. That's, for any business, that's a huge achievement. Well done.
7: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. We've, we've, we've treated it as a, as a very special moment in our in our journey and uh, yeah we're pretty proud to be here.
1: Okay so help me out here because um, uh, if you've ever seen me work around any tools you would know that I don't know my way around anything that is built. Um, so a leading manufacturer of custom material handling equipment and systems what does that mean?
7: Yeah that's, that's quite a generic little sentence for what we really do but I think the best way to describe it Scott is that we build equipment that, you know, creates motion and does motions. Those motions could be lifting, uh, inversion, you know, rotation, sliding, et cetera. And then we put intelligence to it, controls and automation. So then we find ourselves able to do projects in a number of different sectors. For example, we lift the railway cars up in the air so you can drop the bogies and the wheel sets underneath. We lift cars during the assembly process. We lift aircraft fuselage during the manufacture. We do a lot of entertainment where we do stage lift systems where things are in motion during the theater events and such. So it's more about the fact that we're building equipment that moves and making it intelligent and then installing it, and it creates the, the whole magnitude of the business. Material handling is a broad term and hard to grasp. I do understand that.
1: But no, so, I mean, as you explain it, so on the simplest, let me bring this down for those who still are struggling with it. On the very simplest thing, something like a joist in a garage to lift a car to change your oil or tires or something, that would be the kind of thing only on a much larger, grander scale.
7: Yeah, a much larger scale, okay. much larger scale. Let me, let me you know, paint a different picture for, for you would be that, we um, work in a fire lab, uh, and we lift a ceiling that weighs 350,000 pounds. And we lift it 72 feet, and it's built into the girders of the building. So far cry from the small automotive lifts you know, in, in one's garage. So it's really where that leaves off, and then we head into a more sophisticated, more demanding applications. That's where we do our best work.
1: How, how did you get into this? Like, has this company always been doing this, or is this something that you morphed into over the, to- over the years?
7: Well, I think like a lot of businesses, you do you do morph. Um, the simple answer is, though, we, we started in a very modest garage in the 60s. The, the owner and, and founder built some cranes to lift motors out of cars. I mean, at that time in the world, that was innovative. You know, and today we buy it probably off Amazon for a couple hundred dollars. you mm. know. And, and, and over time, we started to become... More and more sophisticated, we just pushed the envelope or raise the bar, perhaps. so in during the 90s we, we called it the years of puberty, where we grew up, we spent a lot of time in the automotive, but we were awkward we weren't we didn't have the infrastructure in, in place to to manage the the size of the projects and the sophistication of the projects. so we spent a lot of time growing up. but from 2000 to now, we have exploded into massive projects we're doing. We've done work for Cirque du Soleil. We work for Universal's, Royal Crimean cruise ships, Boeing, Pratt and Whitney, Rolls Royce. Is that Ford. sorry?
1: Is that your company that does the the underwater uh, lifts on the ships? Ah, see, I now I didn't know your name, but I knew of that. I knew there was a local company that was doing that. That was doing the yeah. underwater stage. The, uh, I see. Yes. There you go. Yes, okay.
7: Yes, yes. 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 We've done we've done eleven of them across the globe. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's been terrific. The first one, uh, Scott, was in '95, '97. The Cirque du Soleil show called, oh, at the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas, still running today, by the way. And off of that success, you know, we, we gained a reputation for doing these underwater shows and Royal Caribbean has grasped it and Cirque du Soleil grasped it. And, yeah, it's pretty spectacular and, and, um, and, and it's become a, a prominent player in that.
1: So the interesting thing about this to me is that I'm guessing that I mean while there's some things like you just described Royal Caribbean where if you've done one of them you could probably duplicate it or come close to duplicating it again a few times but much of the stuff you would do I would guess would be from scratch every single time custom.
7: Yeah, the <clears throat> there's not a lot of companies uh, like ours that I have found that will do its best work on what I call clean sheet engineering. So it's it's an idea there's a budget. There's a vision of what this will be and how it will work. And together we do, you know, like a concurrent engineering together and we come up with the concepts, design it and build it and test it and ship it and install it. And, and they they don't always work, Scott, by the way. So <laughs> we, we, we've we gained uh, experience in, in um, repair and, and and recovery, if you will. So in some ways, we humor use our humor to say that we're almost in, in the business of making boo-boos mistakes that, you know, happen when you do custom equipment, but we've prepared ourselves very, very well for those occurrences with the right kind of people.
1: Well, who, I mean, look, honestly, uh, who among us, Tom, has not, and this sounds ridiculous, but who among us hasn't learned more and gotten better overdoing by the mistakes more than the successes? Honestly.
7: Well, 100%, Scott. We, we don't like to call them mistakes. We call them lessons learned. We call them wisdom. You see, when people come to us now they, and they're risking their money and they're looking at risk aversion on a massive project, we have decades of performance that we can put before them. And this can install enough confidence for them to commit their funds to us. So we we have a lot of like sole single source projects. People just want to come to us and, and get it done and do it right because we do know how to manage the success of projects, but also the challenges that go along with them. And and, and you have to be able to do that to succeed in this in this custom world that we live in.
1: Well, I'm just, as we're talking here, I'm just scrolling through uh, some of the people who are your clients, NASA, Cirque du Soleil, as you mentioned, Disney, Boeing. Yeah. It's, it's the sort of the who's who. And, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. It's it's uh, and I guess that, you know, what, it's one of those things we got to run, but I'm guessing that because you're doing the stuff that allows other people to do the stuff, many people wouldn't know about your stuff, but there you go. Uh handling specialty is the name of the company. Uh, now you do. Really appreciate it. I'm Tom Beach, who is president of the company of Hamilton, of Handling Specialty. Tom, thanks for this.
7: Thanks for having us.
1: Well, let's dive back into the morosity. Is that a word? The gloom that is the end of the Ticat season. I mean, the big hope here was that like a couple of years ago, they'd be playing a home Grey Cup game. Uh, that made a huge difference a few years ago. It was, it was, it was, Terrific having them here. The whole city was buzzing because the home team was in it. Ah, That's not going to be the case. They lost to Montreal in the East semifinal. Their season is done, but there are, there are a lot of questions and I'm not sure that they're being asked loudly enough. Let me bring in Justin Dunk, founder of three down nation CFL analyst with Sportsnet. Justin, how are you today? Doing
0: well, Scott. What about you?
1: I am doing fine. I'm probably doing better than Grey cup organizers who who are like, Oh really? Now, um, Here's the thing, Justin, a few weeks ago when the Blue Jays were in the playoffs, John Schneider, the Blue Jays manager, got pilloried by everybody, and appropriately so, for pulling out his starting pitcher who was doing really well, and they took him out way too early. I think that the flip side happened here. I, I think Orlando Steinauer honestly deserves tons of criticism for leaving his starting quarterback in way too long when Bo Levi Mitchell, his highest paid guy, and the guy you brought in just for moments like this, is sitting on the bench till there's six minutes left. I, I think that was a ridiculous decision. You?
0: There's so many conversations that go on behind the scenes that I'm sure Orlando Steinauer, Scott Milanovic, and probably Bo Levi Mitchell, Matt Schultz were part of those discussions. But you know it was very clear that Mitchell was not happy about it especially with his post game comments essentially saying that well if you're not going to play your highest paid player in the playoffs then you know really I'm going to be out of here i think there is some frustration there from Mitchell who's wearing his heart on his sleeve he clearly cares and i don't want to go as far to say as it was outrageous but i think we should have seen Mitchell earlier on like I'll go back to you know a number of weeks ago when the Tiger Cats were in Saskatchewan. It was essentially a must-win game for the Rough Riders to try and make the playoffs at that time. Bolivar Mitchell came in for the first series, went right down the field, looked really good. And then Matt Shilts came in and went the rest of the way. So I thought there would be more of a split in playing time here. But from the coach's perspective, they probably also wanted Shilts have that opportunity to get into some sort of a rhythm. Now it's difficult because it's playoffs and so much is on the line. I'm just kind of trying to paint both sides. Mm. I believe Mitchell should have been in the football game earlier, especially with the way that Schultz was struggling. But from the other perspective, I think they thought, well, you know, maybe he's starting to feel it a little bit. Maybe he's starting to get what it's like to play in a playoff game and get a little bit longer of a leash from Schultz's perspective.
1: I, I So I'm with you on the, let's let him not go into the, onto the field and immediately feel like he's under the gun that if a one drive goes wrong, he's going to be pulled. I'm, I'm with you. Give him some, some leash and let him do, but at halftime, no touchdowns, not showing much offensive anything. To me, it's halftime. You all of a sudden bring Bo Levy and Mitchell in. If you're going to go down go down with the guy that you brought in for this moment. I, 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 I did not want Schultz necessarily pulled right off the bat, but for the very reason that you just said, you don't want Schultz to feel like you want him to get in some rhythm. How is Bo Levi Mitchell even supposed to get into rhythm with six minutes left?
0: Exactly. And I think that's where it gets really tricky as a coach, where you're trying to feel this out at halftime, right? You're thinking, okay, if we come out with Schultz, make some adjustments, perhaps he's going to get into a rhythm but then on the flip side of it as you're laying out well, if we go with Mitchell he's a veteran guy he knows what the playoffs are like he's led teams to gray cups before you know i think that was probably the time to go with Mitchell or even sprinkle Mitchell in you know in the first or second quarters i kind of thought that's what they were going to mm. do in terms of giving the alouette's defense different look so i'm with you in the overall sense of it but i just think they were going to go about this in a different way and not put Mitchell in the game essentially when it was all but over or ask him to create a miracle comeback, essentially out of nothing, no rhythm or flow on the offense at all.
1: Yeah. And then, I mean, his interception, it wasn't a great throw, but at this point you're like, it's desperation time. You're trying to do something beyond just playing quarterback. You're trying to be a miracle worker and that stuff is going to happen. Let me ask you this because, okay, we, we can, people can argue this all day long. They can say it was the right decision. They can say it was the wrong decision. What do you think this does? when it comes to luring big time free agents to this team. And I asked this because so much was made this offseason of the huge push and the whining and dining of Bo Levi Mitchell to come here. And when people, when other players around the league, see how he was handled in this situation, does that make it more difficult next time?
0: I don't think it does because money talks and all the BS is going to walk. Essentially, Bo Levi Mitchell, There were some other reasons in there too, but came to the Hamilton Tiger Cats because they were going to pay him over $500,000 to do so $520,000 to be exact. So I get your point, but things change, right? You have to perform. And if you don't perform, especially in a year where I hate using this phrase, but I think it's apropos because of how many of the veterans they brought in the Tiger Cats were going all out to win the great cup because they were hosting it. They wanted to get it done. And that, drought that's the longest in the CFL, going all the way back to 1999 now, I think that was what they were focused on. I don't think this changes much in the future. The way that it could hinder them is if some offers are close. That's where some players might look and say, you know, I don't really like the way that he was treated, but I think most pro football players are wired to understand that if you don't produce, changes can happen really quickly.
1: We were talking with Rick Zampern earlier in the show, and... One of the things we pointed out was the, the, the results this team has had in the last number of years. Let me just read them. This year was eight and 10 last year, eight and six, it was a shortened season, uh, 15 and three. That was terrific. Uh, 2018, eight and ten. Six and 12, seven, 11, 10 and eight, nine and nine, 10 and eight, six and 12, eight and ten. Nine and nine, nine and nine. You're going back to 2009. And with one exception, this team has been mediocre at best. Why? Because they've certainly, as you say, they've certainly gone for it. They've certainly spent the money. They've certainly got people in the front office. Why can this team not get it together other than that one year? So
3: (laughs) part
0: of it, I will say, is kind of the mindset of the East Division, but that's changed with what the Toronto Argonauts have done this season, tying the all-time single season CFL wins record at 16. And Scott, you know this as well as I do, in pro sports business or anything else in this world where you have a common goal, you're trying to accomplish something like the tiger cats are in terms of winning the gray cup. It's leadership. And I think that it is coming from the top. Bob Young is great, especially publicly calls himself the caretaker. Doesn't want to call himself the owner, but you and I, and I think a lot of people would agree that Scott Mitchell in that community put a lot of people off with everything that went down with the stadium. And his mentality, I think, behind the scenes of this team has created not an ideal culture. They've had some great seasons. They've been to the Grey Cup. They haven't quite gotten over the top. But I think if you look at the culture behind the scenes, that that could improve. I'm not talking about Orlando Steinauer. I'm going above and beyond him because Orlando Steinauer, we know, can create a great culture. But ultimately, when you're working around that, Above you all the time, it's going to affect you and ultimately the team.
1: That is Justin Dunk. He is the founder of Three Down Nation and he is a CFL analyst with Sportsnet. Justin, appreciate it today. Thank you for doing this.
0: Thank, thanks, Scott.
1: I'm going to bring Tom in. Tom is just back from a trip, back in the saddle over in the behind the glass in the do not feed the operator segment of the zoo here.
8: Who put that up? I protest that sign. <laughs> so, anyway, the reason we're playing that song which, um, great
1: song by the way. Uh, and not just because of its play, its use on married with children as a theme song. My daughter had a wedding shower on the weekend. She's getting married in a few months. And so we are, we are, you know, we're sort of in the wedding frame of mind now. It's coming up, it's getting close, four months away, a little less than four months away. Well, congratulations. Yes. Uh, and Dan, there you go. Um, and, uh, so, but I saw this story about another couple who got married on the weekend and I thought to myself, I don't know how I would react if this is what they decided to do for the wedding reception. Oh God. Okay. okay so, okay. So let me, let me back up for one second. Anyone listening who has had a child get married or perhaps themselves get married and has helped to pay for the cost of it understands some of these b- wedding, uh, reception halls now. Unbelievably expensive, unbelievable. We, we were, they were, somebody was, I don't know, looking at one recently where the minimum cost, you can go up and add extras, but the minimum you were permitted to spend was $35,000. Oh,
2: really?
1: right? that's where it starts. And then anything extra you put on top of that. I mean, these, you know, weddings are, and then you got the dress and the, you've got the invitations and you've got the, this and the, that and the honeymoon and the, like you can add up anyway, so. I am not necessarily suggesting that you should go and blow your brains out with costs and just go with the most expensive wedding. However, however, that said, a couple in Tennessee on the weekend Decided to have their wedding reception. Well, actually she decided, he didn't know where the reception was going to be, which is another weird thing. Cause I, you know, I guess the groom just like, Oh, show me where to go. I'll go there. Uh, he didn't know. She set up the wedding reception at the waffle house, the waffle house, the local waffle house, like the, anyone who's been to a waffle house, You know, which, which has its charm under certain circumstances when you're just starving in the middle of the night, somewhere down in the States, I don't know if they have them in Canada or not, but you know, they, they serve their purpose, but they would not be what I would consider wedding-ish. No, not. Not really. If you're thinking about where you're going to have a wedding recession, the waffle house is probably, if you had a list of, I don't know. Thirty-eight thousand possible locations. This would be thirty-eight thousand and one. It would just—it would be like having it in the McDonald's
8: child's play area in the in the happy zone. I mean, yeah, you gotta imagine. Just there had to have been a discussion beforehand. No. of like, what's our budget? Well, no, there wasn't. So there's a story behind it. So at least there's a story. It's not just her wait, being wait, ridiculous. Surprises?
1: Yes. This on the husband? Yes. He had no <laughs> idea where the reception was. So he had been in the Marines, and when he would have furlough. His family used to take him to the Waffle House as a, a taste of America, a reminder of home. So at least there's kind of a, Uh, however, even with that, even with that, you could have the rehearsal dinner at Waffle House if you wanted to. You could go the night before or the morning before you head off on your honeymoon if you want. A wedding reception at the Waffle House, I'm just not sure. Okay, so again, not to be elite, we don't want to be elitist about this, but tell me honestly, Tom, I mean, I don't know how many, I don't know how many weddings you've been to, but if you got an invitation to a wedding and it didn't say, you know, Hamilton Golf and Country Club or, you know, Royal Hamilton Yacht Club or I don't know, some lovely restaurant or something like the typical places, if it had, if it said,
8: meet us at the Main Street Waffle House. (laughs) Honestly, what would your reaction to that be? Well, it's funny we're talking about this because my uh, Aunt Joanne's wedding was a couple weeks ago, actually. Uh, uh, Joanne and Dan, they got married and it was... they got married at Dundurn Castle, right over here. Yes. And we then had the reception. I forget the name of the place, but it was- But a, I bet it was nice. It was nice. It was a good, it was a nice restaurant. I wouldn't say it's like the golf club or anything like that, but it was It was nice. Like You could tell there was a budget that was put in place for this, and they spent it really well. All right. So here, I looked this up because I thought, okay, this has to be the most ludicrous
1: place. And again, I mean- Waffle House has its moments. It's just not for a wedding, but I was looking okay, there's gotta be a website, there's gotta be a list somewhere of the truly most Goofy places people have gotten married or had a reception. If
8: there is a Florida wedding at the Outback Steakhouse, then I will just- Oh, see now, I'll Outback stop Steakhouse, everything. I would be okay with. Actually, maybe. Mm-hmm. maybe I, I mean, that would be a step up for Waffle House for sure. <laughs> yes. So
1: apparently a new thing, I've never heard of this before, but something that people are doing a lot now, and I, I mean, I don't know what a lot means, but getting married at funeral parlors. Uh, Why would you hmm. do that? Why in the world would... Now, I assume
8: there's no like open casket nearby well, or something. Just you have... Maybe well, space up. is available hmm. and there's parking. Yeah. The quick question on that one. Are these wedding attendees of the goth variety? Because that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, if
1: you were in a death metal or something, perhaps. But still, uh, even then, come to our wedding at the Bob's Funeral Parlor. Like that just is not... <laughs> Something is definitely wrong with that. Uh, Okay. Waffle house. I don't know, but Taco Bell, people have been getting married at the Taco Bell. (laughs) Hell no. Yeah. I'm going to go no on that one as well. How about this one? How about this one? Okay. I, the couple may be into this, but what do you do if you're invited as a guest to a wedding being held at a naturist resort? Oh. A nudist colony. Show up and you better, you're going to join us all. Now, that there is an uncomfortable wedding. Because the bride and groom may be way into the whole nudism thing. But I don't know that Hmm. Aunt Janine who right. shows up is wanting to, you know, doff the duds and stand there. I don't know if you're in the bridal party or the groomsmen. Do you want to be up front with your
8: bow tie tied somewhere else? I mean, is that re- is that really <laughs> what you want to be doing? Probably not. I mean, like like especially if they're If you are invited to a wedding of people really close to you, I would say definitely not. And it just progresses to varying levels of no from that point forward. Yeah, I think I would take a, I was going to say a hard pass. I'm just going to take a pass (laughs) at the the nudist colony
1: wedding. I'll I'll just, I'll get the pictures later. You can show me the video. Uh, In Greece, somebody took a video when they stumbled on a wedding reception being held at a gas station. I don't even I don't even know where that just a sign of Greece's economy. Uh. Uh, yeah, okay, a couple more, uh, w- two more. One of them, a wedding. Now this one's cool. This one I would do if you had the money to do it. A zero gravity flight. Ooh, one of those ones like when they were doing the Apollo thirteen or whatever. These yeah. parabolic things where for like twenty seconds you get to that one. Weird definitely
8: weird. You're all floating around in the plane and the ring goes flying away or whatever, but that one. Okay. You see see, that one I would do like not, maybe not for the reception where with the cake and the food flying around (laughs) as well, but the wedding itself, I would definitely consider doing that.
1: Yeah. The champagne is a real problem in zero (laughs) gravity. The other one though, and I don't even know about this one is they got married in the Outlook Hotel where the shining was made like the most terrifying. Oh no. Thank you. Oh oh. no. Hold on. Hold on. You, You perked my ears here. Yeah. The <laughs> elevator, you hear the elevator ding and suddenly a wall of blood comes shooting at, And oh, No, 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 thank you. Don't need that Happy one. Happy blood wedding. Yeah, uh, there you go. But yeah, a, a, a Waffle House? Uh, I don't think so.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com
1: thank you for being here today. Really appreciate you joining with us. I will be back at my normal spot at six o'clock tomorrow. Scott Thompson will be back in his normal spot at three o'clock. Tom will be in his normal spot on the other side of the glass. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.